Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 17, says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling, have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If so be that you have heard, of him, heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you may put on the new man, which is after God, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would be with us this morning. We're thankful to be here and for the opportunity we have to worship. We ask that you would please bless the reading of your word and, and give me the physical strength necessary to proclaim it with accuracy and with authority. Please be with us as we seek to glorify you in all things. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Many of you will remember that my father was a machine shop foreman for a long time in addition to teaching and preaching. There were a few years where my brother Steve and I were able to work at his machine shop, one of the two of us was actually pretty good at it, and it wasn't me. Uh, when it came to assigning jobs, because Steve was good at it, he would get some of what we call design jobs. A design job was usually making a relatively small number of parts that had to be made with precision and they took a long time to make so I'm certain that he will let me know that I'm characterizing this wrong but my assessment was that his jobs usually entailed putting a part in the CNC machine closing the door hitting the button and then twiddling his thumbs for an hour while it did all the work because dad didn't want to seem like he was favoring his son's and because I wasn't particularly good at machining, I got the production jobs. Production jobs are when you have to make, say, like 10,000 parts, and they didn't require a whole lot of precision, and very often they could be made quickly, you know, 10, 15 seconds per part. That's what I would get to do for 10 hours a night, and I would come home with my clothes saturated from head to toe, in this delightful combination of CNC coolant and sweat and honing oil, which if you're not familiar with honing oil, it smells horrendous. I hated that smell, so I hated those clothes. They were a mixture of old stains and fresh filth and a stench that seemed entirely resistant to laundry soap. It's sort of having flashbacks about it right now. But when we would get off work at about 2 a.m., we would drive home, and there were two things I desperately needed. I wanted a shower, and I wanted new clothes on. What sense would it have made for me to 
set those nasty work clothes on the bathroom floor just so I could take a shower and then put them right back on again. In this text, the Apostle Paul is using the analogy of changing clothes. Last week, we saw him use a different analogy, the idea of how a church grows up, how it matures. But this week, you'll see at verse 22, he talks about put off the former conversation, the manner of life of the old man. And in verse 24, put on the new man, which is after God, created in righteousness and true holiness. Those words for putting off and putting on, that is the language of changing clothes. But these clothes are talking about your conversation, your manner of life, your behavior. Just as it would be senseless to take off disgusting work clothes, shower, and then put those nasty clothes right back on, it's likewise senseless to be washed in the blood of Christ only to continue in the same old manner of life. So the Apostle Paul uses this analogy of changing clothes, and he does this frequently in his letters. When he writes to the Colossians in Colossians 3, 9 and 10, he says, you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in the image of God, his creator. In Romans 13, 12, he says, let's cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. He tells the Galatians in Galatians 3 that as many as have been baptized in Christ have put on Christ. You're clothed with Christ. Here, he's saying, your behavior needs to be changed. Now, much of the rest of this letter from here on deals with that behavior. While while everything in the letter is interrelated to each other, that is, that the thoughts of the Apostle Paul flow naturally from one to another, we see it become sort of even more intense in the remainder of this letter. The way this letter develops is seen in the way that Paul uses the words, they'll show up here as therefore or wherefore, right? There's a subtle difference in those words, but essentially both of them mean because of that. So both are making a logical inference that what has just been said relates to what is about to be said. So you'll see this in verse 17. I say this, therefore, in verse 25, wherefore, put away lying. In chapter 5, verse 1, be therefore followers of God. Verse 7 in chapter 5, you'll see therefore, and there's a wherefore in verse 17, and therefore in verse 24. You get a couple of more over in chapter 6. Verses 13 and 14. So what Paul does for the remainder of this letter is to make reasonable, logical inferences, layer upon layer of truth, that demands holy and righteous living from those who are followers of Christ. This behavior, this change of clothes, as Paul describes it, is work for us to do. And it's helpful for us to have This passage is modern Christians just as it was for the Ephesians back in the first century. Nowadays, we get to see the the whole world and decide everything that needs to be fixed, right? I've, I've got some thoughts on the Ukraine and Russia. I have opinions on police brutality in Memphis and about classified documents showing up in people's garages, right? And to be sure... The word of God gives us a worldview 
through which we see all those issues of the world. But more importantly, more primarily, the Word of God demands a kind of holy introspection. It, it insists that we, we look at ourselves. What about my morals? Right? What, what am I doing with the words from my mouth? How is it that I'm using my money? There's a desperate need for spiritual renewal in this world, and I am not to overlook the fact that that need starts right here inside of me, in my heart, in my life. If you're cleansed by the blood of Jesus, you are not to pick up the filthy, stinking old clothes off the dirty bathroom floor and just put them on again. Disciples of the Lord Jesus are commanded to set aside their old lives and live as new creations in Christ. So this morning, we're going to look at this text as it's centered around Paul's analogy of a change of clothes. And see it just very simply is first the, the old clothes described in verses 17 through 19, and the new clothes commended in verses 20 through 24. So starting at verse 17, the old clothes Described. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling, have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness." So as Paul transitions to this new command to have a a change in your manner of life, like you would change your clothes, the first thing he does is he is adamant, this is not a suggestion. He says, I testify in the Lord. The word testify in Greek there isn't a simple one to translate, but it means more than just, I'm telling you something. It carries the idea of a command. Some translations here use the word affirm to say, I affirm, this is the Lord's command. Or others use, I insist on behalf of the Lord. So with the Lord Jesus himself as Paul's source of authority, he insists that the members of the church at Ephesus no longer behave like the world around them, right? That you henceforth, literally, from now on, don't walk as other Gentiles walk. Now, part of what we've done in this series on Ephesus is we started in Acts and sort of worked our way through the New Testament as it relates to this city. And we, we know what Paul's talking about then when he talks about walking like other Gentiles walk. You know the world around them. We, we took that sort of uh, tour of Ephesus back when we started. There's the harbor on the west side of town. There's the 25,000 seat amphitheater on the the east side of town. There's the marble sidewalks. There's the gymnasiums and the bathhouses and all of it's under the, the shadow of the temple of Artemis. It is a city that was so proud of its self rule, proud of its wealth, proud of its debauchery, proud of its pagan worship. And when the gospel came to town, the entire city erupted in a riot. And the Apostle Paul says no longer to walk as the Gentiles walk. He's talking about that kind of culture. Here's how, Paul, here's how the Apostle Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 4, verses 3 through 5. 
He says, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, detestable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of reckless, wild living, and they speak evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So this living like Gentiles is a description essentially of depravity run amok. Here in our text, Paul reduces all of that for a brief moment down to a a single word. Look at verse 17. How, How is it that they walk? What was their manner of life? Paul says it was in the vanity of their mind. Biblically, this word vanity means emptiness or futility. The former way of life is empty. It is devoid of any real substance. But when Paul says it is the vanity of their mind, he's saying that the very, the very thinking, the heart and mind of the, the former man is empty. It is, it is utterly futile. It is consumed with desires and goals and selfishness that, are, that is vain. It leaves you empty. You know, the writer of Ecclesiastes used the same kind of term when he says that all such pursuits are vanity and vexation of spirit, or literally translated, it is empty and like trying to grab at the wind. You can't get your hands on it. There's a futility to it. So then if it's all empty... If that's what the former manner of life is, why is it that people live like that? The apostle gives five explanations or descriptions of the life that is characterized here as vain or or futile. Five descriptions of a life of futility. And I'll give each of them to you and then we're going to walk through them briefly. They are a darkened mind, a godless ignorance, a hardened heart, an insensitive attitude, and insatiable selfishness. Now those are not all exclusive to each other. They're sort of interrelated. But they describe this vain, empty, futile manner of life. So let's walk through those for a second. First, a darkened mind. Verse 18. Having the understanding darkened, he says. Now, right away, the world would want to protest this and say, this is not the case. I mean, look at everything we know. Our understanding has surely been illuminated because we can give evidence of it, right? We've, we've managed to map the human genome. We've developed supercomputers. We've adventured into space travel. But none of that has opened our eyes to God. In 2 Timothy 3, 7, Paul describes some who are always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of truth. The understanding of the natural man is limited by his sinful nature. He does not and cannot know the things of God because they are spiritually discerned. And so when the apostle used the term darkened for our understanding, it implies two things. First, that we are, we are in the dark as far as true knowledge goes. And secondly, is that we are behaving 
in ways that are dark, right? We are doing things that are not suitable to see the light of day. He's not done with this analogy, by the way. You can glance over at chapter 5, verse 8, and he brings this back around and says, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The second way he describes this is a godless ignorance. The end of verse, or the middle of verse 18, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. I call this godless ignorance because what Paul is saying is without God, without knowing God, you're also going to be ignorant about yourself and you're going to be ignorant about the world around you. The word ignorant here, it's not there in order to call people names. It literally means not knowing. So what Paul says, if you are alienated, right, if you are, you are separated from God, then no matter how much knowledge you have, you don't actually know anything. I like how John Piper described this, so I just want to share a quote with you. There is a superficial knowledge in the darkened mind of man. Apart from spiritual light, I can know 10,000 things, but I cannot know the true meaning of anything, not one thing. Because to know the meaning of a thing is to know why it exists. But Colossians 1.16 says, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. So until I know in my heart that every molecule of this universe exists for the sake of Jesus Christ, I don't know the final meaning of anything. I misunderstand everything until the darkness of my mind is taken away. This is sort of the the godless ignorance that characterizes a, a vain way of life. Third, he describes a hardened heart at the end of verse 18. This is because of the blindness of their heart. Now I know the text says, Uh, the blindness of their heart. And I just said he's describing the hardness of their heart. But I want you to know why. There is a translational issue in verse 18. Paul uses the word porosis, and it means hardness. It's used to describe something petrifying or developing a callus. It's the same word used in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, when Jesus looked in anger at the Pharisees for, quote, the hardness of, of their hearts. I think this is important because the earlier description we have of their understanding is darkened, that is what implies blindness. This is a description of something else. This is a hard-heartedness that characterizes the vain, empty way of life. He's about to develop that hardness in a moment when he says they are past feeling. Literally, they're calloused. A hardened heart is equivalent to having a seared conscience. Back in Exodus, Pharaoh hardened his heart. He purposefully and willfully closed his heart to hearing Moses' appeal. The heart is the seat of personality and and desire, and it is hardened and resistant to being imposed upon by the commands of God its creator. So that even... If a sinner's mind was illuminated, the true knowledge of God made available, their heart is impenetrable. It is hardened. It is 
It is resistant to the things of God. Fourth, he describes an insensitive attitude in verse 19. Who being past feeling. The word Paul uses here means to no longer feel pain. Literally to become calloused. I don't know how many of y'all got to enjoy running around outside barefoot as a kid. You do that enough, you become calloused, right? Because now, after an extra 40 years of wearing shoes and, and adding weight, I can't do that. I feel it, right? I know Jay hates this example. But the same thing happens through years of carpentry, right? If, if I started, you know, if, if I swung a hammer all day long tomorrow and, and the, the movement of it in my hand and the, the reverberation of when it hits something, my hand's not used to that. And I'm going to end up with blisters. But Jay did carpentry for, for years and his hands became calloused and rough. This life of futility, this, this vain way of living, Paul says it is characterized by an insensitive attitude and that insensitivity, insensitivity comes when we're callous. The idea is specifically that we become calloused after a sense of routine makes us no longer feel what we ought to feel. You know this is true about yourself and the sin in your life. What is it that you say or what you do or where you go, that when you first did that, you felt the, the shame and guilt, but after the repeated continuation of it, you no longer feel it. You have become calloused. Your hardened heart is callous to it. You don't feel it anymore. You've developed an insensitive attitude. And then fifth, he describes an insatiable selfishness. Verse 19, he says, they have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Had to wrap our minds around that old word lasciviousness for a minute. The modern equivalent to that word is licentiousness. You can almost hear the word license in it. Some translations use the word debauchery or sensuality here. People, Paul says, have given themselves over. They have given themselves license, permission to engage in all sorts of self-satisfying sin, no matter how shameful those sins really are. In fact, he even goes on to use the word work in this verse. Like they make an occupation, a continual habit of practicing those sins despite the fact that the Lord Jesus has declared such behavior to be unclean, to be impure. They don't just engage in those sins. Paul says they do it with greediness, right? There is this insatiable desire, this want to satisfy self more than to satisfy God. You see this taking place all over in our society today. Right? Alcoholism is labeled a disease so that we ignore that it's sin. 
where being alone with someone of the opposite sex used to be a cause for scandalous whispers. Now the same folks just shamelessly move in together and dare believers to say that it's wrong. We're unwilling to define what a woman or a man is. We, we can't even call pedophiles pedophiles. The latest thing is, well, they're minor attracted persons. Internet pornography is widely available and widely consumed. Abortion's not considered murder. Being offensive and shouting insults at others is just a, a way of expressing your political righteousness. Lying is an acceptable sin. Greed is celebrated as long as you're being a good American capitalist and consumer in the process. Society is wallowing in darkened minds, godless ignorance, hardened hearts, insensitive attitudes, and insatiable selfishness, and Christians don't look much, if any, different from them. And so Paul admonishes the Ephesians and admonishes us. Henceforth, right, from now on, don't be like that anymore. You've got a new manner of life because, verse 20, but you have not so learned Christ. This is not the way you learn Jesus. You've been saved, right? Well, if your answer to that is yes, what is it that you've been saved from? When you learned Christ, when you embraced Jesus as Savior, you were saved from your sins. If you're a believer in Jesus, follow the Lord Jesus. If you love Jesus, obey Jesus. What's the Apostle John say about this in his letter? Anyone who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commands is a liar. If you have been saved from your sins, why continue in those sins? You've put that away because you know better. So that's the the old clothes described. Now see the new clothes commended, verses 20 through 24. Paul's going to get to that analogy of clothing in verses 22 through 24. But first, he speaks more about what it means to learn Christ. Look at verses 20 and 21 again. But you have not so learned Christ. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Have you learned Christ? This is some strange language that Paul is using here. It doesn't show up anywhere else in scripture. It doesn't show up anywhere that I've heard of in writing outside of scripture. I mean, you could take a Roman government class and say, well, I learned about Augustus Caesar. But you wouldn't say, I learned Augustus Caesar, right? You wouldn't say that you learned them as a topic. You would say, well, I've learned about him. But when it comes to Jesus, Paul's description is not that the Ephesians have just learned about him. He just says, you have learned him you've learned christ the conclusion i have to reach is that being a christian is not simply knowing and learning about jesus it is having a relationship with jesus so that you know him not just know about him now of course you do need to know about him and paul's going to say that very thing in just a moment but 
we can say that we have learned Jesus in a way that we would just never use this kind of, this kind of wording about anybody else in the world because he is unlike any other person who's ever lived. So look at what he says in verse 21. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. What a a breakdown. There's, There's three steps in that verse. And it's just fascinating what Paul's done. First, he says, if it's so that you have heard him. That is, Paul has reason to wonder if a person who is living in that immoral vanity, that futile way of life, if they really have heard about Jesus, not just that there was a Jesus, but what Jesus was like, because he didn't live that way. He welcomed sinners, but not to embrace their sin. He welcomed them and insisted that they change. And so you need to know about his life, about his teaching. You need to know about his love for the Father, about his death on the cross on behalf of his people, about his demands on his disciples, his commands for how to live. There's a lot you need to know about him. And that's what Paul's saying in that first part. Like, have you learned about him? But that's not all he says, because second, he says, and have been taught by him. Just based on that phrase, let me ask you the question. Who teaches you about Jesus? I could flatter myself and say that's my job and to some extent that's true. The church at Ephesus reading this, they would have said, well, well, Paul's the one who teaches us about Jesus. After all, not many, if any of the Gentiles in the church at Ephesus had ever gone to Jerusalem, they'd never visited the promised land, they hadn't seen Jesus face to face, heard him personally. But listen to what Paul says. He says, if you have heard about him and have been taught by him, taught Jesus by Jesus. Frank Thielman wrote this. He says, with that expression, the implication is that Christ is alive and that when one hears the gospel preached, they have been put in touch with a living person. In other words, the answer is Jesus teaches you about Jesus. And he teaches us through the word of God as you read it, through the the proclamation of the word of God as you hear teachers and preachers uh, present it. I assure you, you will be much better off learning Jesus from Jesus than you will be learning me. And yet Paul's still not finished in verse 21 because third, he says, as the truth is in Jesus. And so Jesus is not only the teacher, he is the content of what is being taught. So follow Paul's steps in verse 21. You need to learn the truth about Jesus. You need to learn the truth from Jesus. And the totality of that truth is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Listen, truth is not just a a set of answers you're going to be expected to fill out on a spiritual final exam. The truth 
was born in Bethlehem and laid in a manger. The, the truth was perfectly without sin. The, the hands and feet of truth were nailed to the cross because you and I desperately needed rescued from the vain futility of our dark-minded, hard-hearted, godlessly ignorant way of life. The truth rose from the grave and you can know him, not just know about him, but you can really know him. You can learn Jesus from Jesus right here in this book. But the consequences of knowing him, if you would really know him, is that he demands you turn away from the sin of your former life and turn to a new way of life. You cannot know him and live like you don't. Because those who know him not only live in a way that's new, they actually become something new. Listen, verse 21 says if, right? You see that at the beginning of verse 21? If, so if you have heard the truth about Jesus, if you've learned the truth from Jesus, if you've seen that Jesus is the truth, then this is what you must do. Verse 22, put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which was corrupt, according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So here's that put off and put on analogy, right? The, the former conversation, that is the former way of life, which corrupt and deceitful, Paul says, you got to take that off, remove it. It's, it's worse than soiled, stinky work clothes. It is rotten to the core. It's, it's filthy rags. It's, as, it's an offense to God and abhorrent to everything that's righteous. Get rid of it. And replace that, Paul says in verse 24, to put on the new man. Now he's using those terms, taking off and putting on, like an analogy of clothes, right? But obviously he's not talking about clothes. He says in verse 22, take off the old man. In verse 24, put on the new man. The change that needs to take place goes deeper than clothes. It goes to the very center of who you are. Take off the old self and put on your new self. Well, where do we get that? Look at what Paul says around this term, put on. Look at verse 23 and 24 again. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you may put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Two words I want to point out to you that he uses there, renewed and created. And I'm glad he uses both of those words. Because when we re read renew in verse 23, we might think that it's describing it like a remodeling project oh, you know, I had some messy things in my life. But Jesus came in and he knocked down a wall and he, he slapped some paint on my structurally sound foundation. Maybe he added some shiplap. I've been remodeled. I am good as new. Well, that's not what renewed means. It means to be made new. 
your life without Christ did not require just a little bit of remodeling. It needed complete demolition. He didn't come to do a quick fixer-upper project on your life of futility and emptiness. He did something completely new. So in addition to that word renew, to make new, Paul uses the word created in verse 24, and we know that's new. He doesn't say God fixed up your righteousness and true holiness. He created any righteousness and true holiness you have. When God created in the beginning, he did not use building blocks. He spoke the world out of nothing. He created from nothing. I mean, think about this. The earth was without form and void. It was empty. It was vain. Does that sound familiar to anything Paul's saying in this text here? Like, do you think that Paul wants us to think about that? Because I do. I'm not going to spend an hour trying to explain this. But I actually think Paul's addressing something of what it means to be created in the image of God. Back in Genesis, when God said, let us make man in our image, it did not mean that you and I look like God, like get up in the morning, look in the mirror, that's what God looks like, because it's not. We are made in the image, in the likeness of a three-in-one being. Hence, let us make man in our image. You are a three-in-one being. You've got a body, a mind, and a spirit. Except that because of the fall, you and I are born spiritually dead. And when we are born again, we are made alive. Isn't that what Paul was just saying a couple chapters ago in Ephesians 2? Spiritual life is instilled back in us, Paul says, so that we are renewed, created, in the image of God. Paul writes something very similar in sort of a parallel passage to the Colossians. In Colossians 3.10, he says, you have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And so I do think that Paul is saying that this putting off of the old self and the putting on of the new self is a product of God fixing what it is we broke by sin all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Now, if you don't follow all that, it's, it's, it's okay. We'll have more time to talk about this later, more, Lord willing. We'll have more chances. But here's what you should get. Paul says that you put off the old man and put on the new man. And he's talking about more than just a, a, a superficial change to bring back my my illustration of coming home from work in disgusting stinky work clothes i needed more than just a change of clothes right i mean i certainly couldn't do with any less than that but i absolutely needed more than that i needed to take off the old clothes get a shower put on the new clothes it's kind of a package deal i mean after a 10-hour shift at a machine shop it wasn't just the clothes that were dirty and smelled bad. It was me. And a quick change where I 
just decide to switch out of the work clothes and put on a, you know, a clean pair of jeans and a t-shirt was not going to make me bearable to be around. For some reason, though, people think that they can get away with that in the spiritual realm of things. They think by, by knowing a little bit about Jesus and, and remodeling the exterior of their lives so they look better, they can present themselves in righteousness and holiness. Thinking that way ignores the fact that the essence of your problem is not just the external things you've done, it is the internal person that you are. The very heart and soul of your being is dreadfully wicked. You need a change that's deeper than what you're wearing. It's deeper than what you do. You need to be changed in the very essence of who you are. And so when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Everything is new. Putting off the old self and putting on the new self. It is a product of a completely new creation through faith in Jesus. It is more than just external. If your putting on of Christ is just an external facade, then it has not, and it hasn't been accompanied by a renewal of your mind and a, a new, being a new creation of God, made in righteousness and holiness. Then it is entirely pointless. You're just trying to put a shiny cover on an old manner of life that is still futile and vain and empty. Inside, you're still dark-minded and hard-hearted and godlessly ignorant. You've got that insatiable selfishness. You have that calloused insensitivity to sin. The real change, the real taking off and putting on comes through learning Christ. To know that there is nothing righteous about you, that your only plea is to be dressed in His righteousness alone, to hear the truth about him, to hear the truth from him, to know in your heart that the very truth you need is him. Faith in Jesus, living in obedience to Jesus, is the only pathway out of a vain, futile, empty manner of life. And so if you're not a believer, you must become one. You must repent of your the sins and the, the futility of your, your life and turn to faith in Jesus, the Son of God. Learn Him from Him. Know more than just about Him. Have a relationship with Him. And if you're a believer, and that's who Paul's writing to here, you need to ask yourself if you're still wearing the old nasty clothes of your former life. And why are you carrying those around? Paul says that is not what you learn from Jesus. What you learn from him as you embrace him is you become a new creation in him to live your life in holiness and righteousness in the image of the Son of God who is the very one who created that life. You live your life for him in obedience to him.